So as we've been discussing throughout the series, uh, every slice of this gun violence and, and shootings problem has been kind of taken by a different 538 writer. So here to discuss her reporting is Leah Labresco. Hey, Leah, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jody. Thanks for having me on. So describe which part of this large number, 33,000 shooting deaths, uh, you, you looked at, and then we'll talk about what you found. Well, I was looking at, with my colleague Carl Bialik, um, mass shooting deaths and some of the particular responses people have had internationally of trying to get guns off the street and out of the hands of public own, uh, of private owners in an attempt to limit the chance of a mass shooting occurring. So I know that that definition, mass shooting, is also a little complicated, right? It, there, there's different ways to define that. But just in terms of context um, for shootings in general how big is how big are mass shootings when compared to other kinds of of gun deaths i mean mass shootings are a tiny fraction of overall gun deaths um you know they garner a lot of publicity because they're kind of particularly large and horrific um because they're experienced as a public tragedy rather than a personal or private tragedy and often because they're either intended to or as a byproduct you know spread terror and fear but they are really a tiny number of all the homicides that are committed in the United States. Right. Though within each mass shooting, and, that, and you could talk a little bit about the definition of a mass shooting, the, the number of deaths within a particular incident is usually much higher. Most shootings are you know, one perpetrator and, and one victim. Yep. And we're using um, what's the most common definition of mass shooting, um, which are shootings that involve four people killed, excluding the shooter. Is that a controversial definition or is that just you have to draw the line somewhere and that's where the line has been drawn? It's the kind of thing where you do have to draw the line somewhere and each individual shooting that's near that cutoff might feel like it fits more naturally as a mass shooting or not. In fact, one of the studies we used in my article um, uses a more stringent definition of five or more people killed rather than four or more. And you know, we note that in the text, but this is something where people have been kind of only coalesced around a definition more recently. So in the wake, and this is what much of what you describe in your piece, but in the wake of an incident like Orlando or San Bernardino, or we could go on and on and on listing the, the recent mass shootings in the United States. But one of the things that people say by way of trying to spark the conversation here in the United States is they say, well, look at other countries. This is not a problem in other countries. And I think that's True. I don't. I don't know. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's not a problem as to the extent that it is here in the United States. But what what were the first set of questions that you were asking when trying to kind of respond to that notion of we should look to other countries? Well, we were interested in the countries where it has been a problem in the eyes of you know that country's government and that country's people, where other countries have taken some kind of action after a tragic mass shooting to try and prevent these shootings from happening in the future. You know, in these countries, and we look particularly at England and Australia, which had two particularly high-profile mass shootings followed by, you know, a burst of gun control legislation um, to see what they did. Now, they may not have had mass shootings as frequently as the United States does now, but, you know, they had a major tragedy and they did what people keep asking America to do. They did something in response. We wanted to see how well those measures worked. I know you talk about some other countries as well, but what did you find in England and Australia? I mean, the thing we found is that it's always hard to measure how good a solution is to a problem that doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. um, so England, before they went, both England and Australia made a lot of kind of guns illegal that had previously been legal. 
and then had a massive buyback program to try and take those newly illegal guns out of private homes, where they would compensate you for the gun and then melt them down. Um, So these were two kind of similar responses to these tragedies. But it's hard to gauge whether they're working, because, for example, in England, there had been two prominent mass shootings um, before the legislation over the course of about 10 years. Um, You know, there was the 1996 mass shooting in Britain that prompted the legislation. Before that, there hadn't been kind of a widely covered mass shooting since 1987. Now, since that legislation, Great Britain did indeed, between 1996 and now, have another mass shooting incident. So one mass shooting between 1996 and now Is that a success for the legislation or is it a failure? It's hard to say because it's so rare that it's hard to tell kind of what the base rate is and what actually represents a significant deviation or decrease. And of course, England has also had, you know, bombing attacks and other kinds of terroristic attacks that haven't taken the form of mass shootings, but have caused mass casualties and mass disruption. And Australia, though, I think is often cited as the prime example for this. They passed legislation after a school shooting, I believe, and they haven't had a single incident since, right? Australia looks a lot better. And Australia did have more mass shootings before their legislation than Britain did before they passed their gun buyback law. So the decrease is more notable in Australia. But again, you know, as a statistician, it's harder to say because things that are rare enough Even when you don't see anything afterwards, it's hard to know for sure that it was the legislation that caused it. So we actually took kind of a wider look at what the impact of buying back all these guns were. We wanted to look beyond mass shootings, which are so rare and so unusual and drive so little of the gun deaths in America, and take a look at how these buyback programs affected overall crime or overall suicides or overall homicides to taking a lot of guns off the street make a difference there. Oh, so the mass shooting is really just the incident that sparks larger gun control. And that gun control, as we've been discussing throughout the series, most gun deaths are not in mass shootings, but that gun control could then have a trickle effect into other kinds of violence. Yep. And, and what? So what? And, and is there evidence that that's what's taking place? So again, in England, the evidence is not very strong that the buyback made a big difference. Um, Gun crime kept climbing after the um, laws were passed and it only dropped. Remember, the gun laws were passed in England in 1996 and they only wound up having gun violence drop in 2003 and four, which is pretty far after the law to kind of try and attribute that decrease in violence to the success of the law. There are fewer um, rigorous analyses of what happened in England. So we were relying a little more on Australia. And in Australia, there are two major studies, and neither of them found, you know, kind of the slam dunk evidence you'd want to see that this was decreasing overall gun deaths. And one of the reasons is, and this is kind of a happy reason to have bad news about the impact of the law, is that overall deaths were falling before the law was passed. Firearm deaths were already falling, so they kept falling afterwards, but not by enough of a difference to make it clear that it was being driven by the passage of the law. And not only did firearm deaths fall afterwards, but overall suicides and overall homicides, suicides and homicides that weren't committed with a gun, fell after the Australia law was passed. So Mm -hmm. things were a lot better in Australia, but for reasons that might have been wholly unrelated to passing this gun buyback law. So what are the other elements when, you know, we're trying to get our head around in a rigorous way or statistical way, you know, what lessons we can learn from other countries Obviously, Australia and England are 
big first world nations, but they are demographically and culturally very different from the United States. So kind of what and are the geographically, other... And geographically, oh, and geographically really different is right. one of the other issues. So uh, Australia is obviously an enormous island. Um, and you might not always think of England as being a unified island because you've got Northern Ireland hanging out over there. But Northern Ireland was exempted from a lot of these gun laws. So practically speaking, the 1996 law was really about Great Britain, Wales, Scotland, and England itself. So they had kind of the same advantage of Australia of not really having a border like the U.S. does across which guns could be smuggled. Both countries had lower rates of gun ownership than the U.S. does in the beginning, and gun buybacks never capture all the guns that were out there. And there's always a concern that the people who turn them in are the people who were least likely to use them in crimes in the future. Though hopefully the people who do turn them in might be some of the people who are at risk of using their own guns for suicide. Right. Or, I mean, we've seen in the case of some of these mass shootings that the guns were legally owned, but then someone else got a hold of them. Uh, I'm thinking in the case of Adam Lanza, he got a hold of his parents' guns and used them for a shooting. But the island thing, is that really a huge factor? I mean, is the is the argument there, the implication there that... If the U.S. were to ban guns, they would start pouring in over the border from Canada and Mexico? It could be a problem. It's a problem that those two countries didn't face. The bigger obstacles for the U.S. are just the enormous number of guns that are already circulating, where it's harder to expect that people who wanted to use guns in crimes wouldn't be able to find a way to reach into that pool of circulating guns. Um, And the other concern is just that these laws, you know, we've been talking about the efficacy of them, how well they'd work if they were implemented. But neither uh, Great Britain nor Australia has anything like the U.S.'s Second Amendment. So Mm -hmm. it's less plausible that these kind of sweeping ways of making guns illegal, requiring they be brought in, would necessarily pass judicial review in the U.S. And it's because Ireland has stronger protections for gun ownership under the Good Friday Agreement that Great Britain's rules didn't apply to Northern Ireland. So in some ways, Northern Ireland is the best analogy for the U.S. here. So, you know, I, I appreciate – I work at 538. You work at 538. I appreciate that you are uh, explaining some of the statistical problems with trying to kind of be rigorous about understanding this this issue and so forth. But, you know, just from – an emotional level or just, you know, in the wake of a mass shooting, it seems totally reasonable to me to try for people who want to curb gun violence to try and capitalize on that moment when everyone's paying attention. Because unfortunately, people don't pay attention to the constant drumbeat of homicides, uh, often in cities that and among populations we don't pay attention to. So, you know, I don't know exactly who my question is, but I, you know, I want I want to just kind of like explore the fact that we have this sort of rational way of looking at this problem in the wake of violence, and then we have this, I think, totally valid emotional response. And I just wonder what you think like a effective conversation in the wake of an incident like Orlando or Sandy Hook or anything, you know, or any of these incidents, what that conversation looks like. I mean, I think a lot of it is trying to connect that very correct emotional response, that sense of grief or injustice. And trying to connect it to whatever intervention will actually do the most good. You know, I was rooting when I started researching this for it to turn out that these gun buyback programs made a huge difference because I would love for there to be a relatively simple national policy Mm -hmm. that makes a huge difference to mass shootings, to homicide. And after doing the research, I wasn't really convinced that was the case. You know, if I were going to 
pick one intervention, I'd be more likely to pick something my colleagues have researched on limiting suicides or protecting domestic violence victims that's more specific than a general gun buyback and is looking at particular populations under threat. Um, I kind of want to end where we started a little bit, which is this um, this context of how mass shootings are you know, a very small part of the larger problem. Do you think that mass shootings get too much media attention? Well, I guess per- speaking personally, I think the part that always gets too much attention is the shooter, him or her, but mostly himself. Um, that there really is, you know, a profound tragedy to mass shootings. Um, I, I interviewed in the context of doing all this research, someone who does school shooting trainings um, for teachers. And he said that one of the particular tragedies is the whole community winds up grieving at once um, in a way that isn't as true necessarily for any single solitary murder. And that's really a unique tragedy of these large scale shootings. But I think the place where we put too much coverage is always on the fascination with the shooter and kind of making an endless promise to the next person to pick up the gun that if they do this, we'll remember them and we'll want to pour over every part of their life and make them the heart of the story. You know, and I really admire all the journals have put the victims front and center and not allowed the shooter to you know, claim that spot in front of all of us. All right. Well, Leah Labresco, thanks for uh, being part of this project and thanks for chatting with me. Thanks for having me on, Jody. 